0: Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. He also said to them in his teaching, Beware of the experts in the law who like to walk around in long robes and receive greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and offer long prayers to look good. These men will receive greater condemnation. Jesus sat down opposite the offering box and was watching how the crowd put money into it. Many rich people put in large amounts. One poor widow came and put in two small bronze coins worth less than a penny. He called his disciples together and said to them, Amen, I tell you, this poor widow put more into the offering box than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the bread of life, it's Tuesday of Holy Week, just roughly 72 hours before Jesus will be nailed hand and foot to a tree. And what is he doing? He's not worrying about himself. He's not trying to work himself up and in prayer uh, find the strength to face the spit and the mocking and the scourge and the crown of thorns and finally the cross itself. No, he's teaching. I think that's somewhat shocking, isn't it? If you had something like that in your future, wouldn't you be spending more me time? But Jesus is always worried about his disciples, but perhaps even more shocking than the fact that we find Jesus teaching just days before he will die is his subject matter, is the object lesson that he picks out. You and I know that the, the teachers of this world, the, the politicians, the, the talking heads on TV, uh, those who create social media influencers, um, they tend to focus on the big important things in this world, right? The big important topics. What, is, what has COVID been up to lately? Or uh, what did this week's past, past week's elections tell us about what's coming in the future for America? Or what in the world was Aaron Rodgers thinking? The, the nation, the world, tends to focus on big, important things in the world, and Jesus does just the opposite. His teaching style is radically different. He focuses on, on small, insignificant things, right? Throughout Mark, we've seen that. Jesus uses the birds of the air and the lilies of the field to illustrate our Heavenly Father's concern for us. He uses uh, the smallest of seeds, the mustard seed, to illustrate how mysteriously but wonderfully the kingdom of God grows. He uses a little boy's lunch to prove that God can provide using nothing but his word. He uses little children that he brings into his arms to show us how, how we approach our Heavenly Father. He uses a fig tree in a couple chapters to illustrate what will happen to those who are found without faith when Jesus returns? In Jesus' hands, the, the most small the smallest, the most insignificant things in this world teach the biggest lessons. And today Jesus chooses for the, the subject of his object lesson a widow. In fact, widows seem to be the theme for today, right? We had the the widow at Zarephath who fed Elijah. We have widows who will stand as testimony against the Jewish leaders who who fleece them out of their house and their home. Last but not least, we have the poor widow who dropped her last two coins into the offering container that Jesus uses as an object lesson. It seems, as you page throughout Scripture, that the Lord has a special place in his heart for widows. And not only in his heart, but in his Word. Think of how, many, how frequently we find widows in the Word of God in Scripture. Uh, we have Ruth and Naomi. They're both widows, and, and the Lord caused an entire book to be written about them. Think of Anna, that prophetess at the temple. One of the very few people in Israel who was actually waiting and longing for the coming of the Messiah. She probably she was a widow for 84 years I doubt that anyone in Jerusalem knew who she was or cared what she did, but her name is forever recorded in Scripture. Her name will forever be recorded and linked next to Jesus. Think of Paul's first letter to Timothy, where he spends a significant portion, 15, 16 verses, encouraging Timothy, tell the church and tell her members to watch out for, to take care of widows. Or James, who writes this about true religion. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled in the sight of God the Father is this, to take care of orphans and widows in their affliction. Clearly, our Lord has a special place in his heart for the least in society, for widows, and and with good purpose, with good reason, too. In biblical days, when the society was extremely patriarchal, women couldn't generally find a job. They couldn't provide for themselves. There was no way for them to have a means of income. And so if a a woman lost her husband, she was in a hard place with very few options. There was no social safety net like we have today. So a woman who was a widow had only a few options. If she was young enough, she could always remarry. That's what Ruth did. If she was an older widow with family or friends, they could take care of her. That's what Jesus did with his mother Mary at the foot of the cross, where where he said to John, this is your mother, take care of her now. But if a widow didn't have either one of those things, she was virtually helpless. She was almost one notch below a beggar at this time because she not only had nothing, she had no way to get anything in a societally approved manner. She couldn't beg. That was looked down upon for a woman to beg. And this is exactly the position in which the widow at Zarephath found herself and her son with nothing, with no way to get anything. What makes it all the more remarkable that the Lord sent Elijah to this widow in Zarephath was where Zarephath was. It was in Sidon, which is about 200 miles north of Jerusalem, right on the Mediterranean Sea. That means that this woman was not an Israelite. She was not an insider. None of God's promises to provide were directly to her. And yet Elijah went anyway even though she was an outsider. And, and that little detail tells us a lot. That, that God's mercy is not limited to his chosen people, to the people of Israel, that the blessings that the Lord will bestow through Israel, especially the blessing of a Savior, it's for all people. It's even for what the Israelites would call goyim, people from the nations. That's, that's you and me. It's even for widows. She has barely enough food for one last meal for herself and her son. She's about to make it. And then look forward to dying. And then Elijah shows up. And he asks to be fed first. And he offers her nothing more than the word of the Lord to substantiate this request. He says, do not be afraid. Go and do just as you said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from the flour and bring it out to me. Then go and make another for you and your son. She could have said no. I don't know what you would have said in her position. I might have said no. No. uh, Crazy Prophet, foreign prophet, go away. I'm going to feed myself and my son first. But she didn't. She listened to Elijah. She made a cake of bread for him and took it to him. Can you imagine what had to be on her mind after she took the last food that she had for herself and her son to Elijah, gave it to him, and then, I don't know, was she walking back into her house, hoping beyond hope that maybe there was just a pinch of flour left, maybe just a drop of oil that she could make, something, something little for her son and herself. But then imagine her amazement as she goes in and she grabs the jar of flour and the, the jug of oil. And there's more there. There's enough for them for that day. And, and not only for that day, but day after day after day, there was enough. Each day, the word of the Lord provided enough for her son and herself to survive. Now what does that lesson tell us? Well, you know that we pray on a weekly basis, I hope, and, and maybe in your life on a daily basis, The fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. But how often do we think about what we're actually praying for in that petition? Daily bread, literally daily bread. What we need for each day, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, today, and bread, the the bare essentials for life. We're not actually asking for luxurious items. We're not asking God to give us over and above what we need. Just the bare essentials. But is that really how we always approach God? Is that always really what we are asking for? I think quite often when we pray to God and we ask Him for bread, for the essentials of this life, we're asking Him for more than just what we need for today. We're asking Him for what we need for next month, next month's bills, next month's mortgage, next year, maybe years in the future when we have to somehow pay for our children's education, maybe, maybe decades in the future when we have to somehow figure out a way to retire Maybe we're thinking about our our legacy, our estates that we will leave behind. Maybe we take 10 seconds before each meal to thank our God for putting that food on our table for us to enjoy and eat, but I can almost guarantee we spend far more time worrying about 529s and 401ks and investments. We lose a lot of sleep over the ups and downs of the stock market, rather than Rather than cherishing and enjoying what is actually on our table, what God has already given us, we we worry that in the future there may not be enough. Too often we're like the, the rich fool. Remember the rich fool building bigger barns? We're so often like him, building bigger homes, bigger barns, renting out storage space for stuff that we don't really need and quite frequently we will never be able to use like that rich fool. Most of it will die and we can't take any of it with us. We, we buy and we save and we scrimp and we hoard. And what do we get at the end of the day? We get frustrated because we're tripping all over this junk that we don't ever use. We complain that we have so much stuff. And if you doubt that, try moving. Try moving. You will be frustrated with how much stuff. Better yet, try clearing out your parents' house. That's an even better sense of where did all of this junk come from? And yet, that, that's us. Always wanting more, always thinking that we need more in order to survive so that our homes aren't big enough, we have to rent out storage space. You know what that's called, right? Always this desire for wanting more, more, more. That's called greed. And the Apostle Paul calls it idolatry. It's idolatry because it, it, it is a window into our heart. It shows that instead of placing our trust in the giver of everything that is good, that he will give us what we need for each day as we pray we think, no, I've got to hoard it up. I've, I've got to save it up. I've got to rely on my own ingenuity and my own investment skills to be able to provide for myself and my family. We've seen this throughout the pandemic, right, with all the hoarding that has going on, people not trusting in God to provide. And yet, he has provided for us, hasn't he? What's the solution for that, that idolatry of greed that lives in all of our hearts it may be a big idol in your heart, it may be a small one, but it's there. All of us think in material terms. That's the materialistic world that we live in. What's the, what's the cure for that? Not to mention, what's the cure for the, the sleepless nights and the heartburn and the stress and the family arguments that occur all because we've placed our, our trust in, in stuff, in, in wealth, in investments, in things that are not God, that cannot really provide for us? What's the cure for that? Let's go back to Zarephath for a second. The jar of flour did not run out, and the pitcher of oil did not become empty, just as the Lord had said. In my mind, and I I can't prove this, but in my mind this this miracle is very similar to Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. As Jesus was feeding the 5,000 with that little boy's lunch, I I think all the disciples ever saw were were the two fish and the five pieces of bread in that basket, I don't think they ever saw Jesus piling them up you know, behind him. I don't think they saw big piles. All they saw was Jesus pulling out enough, enough, more and more, enough to feed thousands and thousands of people. And with this, this widow at Zarephath, I don't imagine that um, by God's command, a Costco truck pulled up behind her hut and dropped off a pallet of flour and jugs of oil. I don't imagine that's what happened at all. I imagine she went into her pantry and it was the same jar of flour and the same jug of oil and there was just enough, just enough for her daily needs, just enough for her daily bread. And she placed her trust in the word of the Lord. That's a widow's faith for you, that she trusted day by day. She trusted the word of the Lord enough to give her last food to Elijah trusting that the Lord who had kept his promises to this point would keep this promise to her to provide for herself and her son. That's a really important lesson for us to learn that, from Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If the Lord decides that today is going to be our last day on earth, it doesn't matter what you have in your pantry or your bank account or your investments, that will be the last day of your life. Build your life on that word, on those promises. Trust him today. Trust him tomorrow. Trust that he will provide in a year and a decade and he will provide for you and your family. That's his promise to you. That's faith that's inspired by the promises of our Lord. That brings us to our our gospel lesson for today. After Jesus warned his disciples against the, the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, of the experts in the law, they were fleecing widows. The, the, the most vulnerable in society, they were taking their house and their home. I would compare it to today's televangelists. You know, they, they appear on TV and they want to appear all pious and sanctimonious. And the whole time at the bottom of the screen is scrolling the, the phone number, the website you can go to to buy their newest book or their newest video. They, they cloak their greed in their religiosity. And that's what these Jewish leaders were doing. But after Jesus warns his disciples about them to watch out for them, he sits down in the temple courts and he's watching people put their offerings into the offering receptacles. And in those days, the receptacles were something like you see on the front of your, your bulletin here. They were trumpet-shaped pieces of metal that went down into a, an offering box, a, a chest, um, where it would be saved. And there were 13 of these different receptacles uh, scattered around the temple courts for people to put in their offering for incense or wood or sacrifices or whatever it was. Now you can imagine, these these trumpets, they were made of metal. And they didn't have credit cards, they didn't have PayPal, they didn't have cash in those days. So all of the offerings had to be given in coins. Well, coin on metal, when a rich person would put many coins in, you can imagine there would be a huge commotion, a huge clattering of the coins down into the receptacle there. And then this poor widow walks up and all she has is two coins. It would have been even smaller than our pennies, worth far less than our pennies, worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wages, probably barely enough to buy a loaf of bread. There would have been no great noise, no great commotion. No one would have noticed that this poor widow put that money into the offering plate. There was nothing to see, nothing to hear. But Jesus heard. Jesus heard. Jesus heard. He heard that woman put in her last two pennies. Although, admittedly, even a five-year-old would find his accounting somewhat dubious, right? He says, this poor widow put in more into the offering box than all the others. No, she didn't. She put in a fraction of a day's wages, a couple pennies. They put in countless more than that. What was Jesus hearing? What was he seeing here? Well, he wasn't looking at what she put into the offering. He wasn't looking at the money. He was looking into this woman's heart. And what he saw was a heart full of faith. A heart that trusted in the Lord's promises so much that she would give the last she had to survive on to the Lord because that's how firmly she trusted in the Lord. Very similar to that widow at Zarephath. That's what counts. It's not the money you put into the offering plate. It's it's how it's given. It's the attitude with which you give. That's what the Lord is concerned about. Sola fide, faith alone, that's the only thing that the Lord cares about. But here's the thing. This this widow proves that faith is never alone. Faith is always working itself out, demonstrating itself in acts of love. Faith by itself is hidden in our hearts. You can't see my faith, I can't see your faith. But we can demonstrate our faith and one of the ways we do that is through our offerings. One of the windows into our hearts is our wallets. How we spend our money is evidence of our faith or lack thereof. It it shows, it reveals, do we trust that the Lord will be good to his word? That when we pray, Give us this day our daily bread. He will provide our daily bread. Maybe it won't seem like much. Maybe, maybe we look into the pantry and it's just the same jar and the same jug. Maybe we look in the bank account and the, the amount never grows. But the Lord's promise to provide day by day will stand. Or, on the other hand, does it reveal that we don't trust in the Lord? That we have instead placed our trust, our faith in the gifts of the giver rather than the giver himself? Now understand this, this window into your heart that is opened by your wallet, by your monthly bank statement, your credit card statement, that's not for me. That's not for anyone else. It's not for the church council. It's not even for the Lord. The Lord knows what's in your heart. That's for you. When you look at your wallet, it only tells you what your faith is like, whether it is strongly focused and based and grounded on the giver and his promises or on the gifts that he has given to you? It's a good question to ponder. What does your wallet tell you about your faith? What the Lord is really worried about is not money. He wasn't worried about the money here. He's worried about the heart. He's worried about faith because only faith can save. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not putting my last two nickels into the offering plate today. That's not what this lesson is teaching here. What is this lesson teaching? Is it proportional giving? Was this poor widow's offering better because she gave 100% rather than 10% or 20%? Is it that you have to give everything away? That's what the monks in Luther's Day thought, that you have to give everything away and only then will you be right in the eyes of God. You have to give away everything so much so that your financial advisor fires you because you don't have any more money for him to manage. No, those aren't those lessons. One of, the le- one of the questions that I was struggling with this week about this lesson was, it's Holy Week. It is, far none, the most important week in human history when Jesus will win our salvation. Why in the world does Mark include a trivial story like a poor widow putting two coins into the offering? What, what is this doing here? Aren't there bigger, better, and more important things Mark could have told us about? Maybe that's the point. That while the world focuses on the big, important things, the notable things, like dumping a a bag full of coins in to, to make a show of how much you love your God, rather God is focused on the small and insignificant things, not your money, but your heart, your faith, like he was with this poor widow. In the end, that's what it comes down to. The, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at our faith. And, and our offerings are one way that we can demonstrate that faith. We can exercise that faith. God doesn't need your money. And, in fact, you can't give it to him anyway. You know, there's no secret receptacle in the back here that shoots it up to heaven, okay? It goes into the back to be counted, to pay the bills, to keep the lights on. That's where your money goes. You can't give it. God doesn't need your money. He's God. He created everything. He gave you your money. Our offerings aren't given for God's sake. They're given for ours. They are a way for us to demonstrate our trust, to exercise our faith, to strengthen our belief in the promises that God has made to us. And what amazing promises those are, right? Two weeks ago, remember, we agreed with Luther when Luther said, We are all... We are all beggars. Well, today, maybe we could say we are all widows. Because we are like that widow. We have nothing. We have no way to get anything to give before God. And yet, God comes to us in our poverty, and he gives us everything. Think of the riches that he gives us. He redeemed us. He bought us back from sin, death, and the devil, not with gold or silver, but with the holy, precious blood of his Son, a lamb without blemish or defect. He baptized us into an inheritance in heaven that can never spoil or fade or rot or lose its value unlike the wealth we have here on this earth. At this table, he's going to feed you with food that you cannot buy at any grocery store. This is food that will not only sustain you today and tomorrow, but but for all eternity. This is food that will sustain you into eternal life. And he gives us all of these things without charge, without cost, totally for free. That's what our faith is rooted on. And that's how we can exercise our faith in our offerings, knowing that the one who has already given us this, the one who has already given us heaven, the one who has already given us Jesus Christ, his own son, he's not going to let us go hungry out there. He promises to provide. It may not be a lot but he will provide day by day. I still have some questions about this text. You know, what happened to that woman? How did she eat that day? How did she pay her mortgage that month? What happened to her? Did, did Jesus tell Judas to take some money out of the, the disciples' treasury and give it to her to provide? I don't know, but Jesus does. Jesus knows what happened to her, and Jesus knows what's going on in your life too. Whether it's hard times or good times for you, Jesus knows and he promises to provide for you. So so learn these big lessons from these tiny little insignificant widows today. It's not about the money. It's about what the money reveals about your faith, that window into your heart. Are you trusting in the giver or are you trusting in his gifts? Build your faith on the Lord's promises, promises you see he always keeps here and then exercise that faith in, your, in the privilege of giving your offerings to the Lord. May God grant us all a widow's faith like that. Amen.